If you walked east from the Adirondack Mountains, you would arrive on the shores of Lake Champlain, one of the most biodiverse lakes in the United States. Ralph Nadang Hill, a Vermont historian, called it the most historic body of water in the Western Hemisphere, a silver dagger from Canada to the heartland of the American colonies that forged the destiny of France and England in America and the United States. What is now known as the Champlain Valley was originally home to the sects of the Iroquois, Mohican, and the Abenaki tribes. They all lived together in peace. The earliest contact with the tribes came from Jacques Cartier, who, while looking for the Northwest Passage, sailed into the St. Lawrence Gulf in 1534. For years, Cartier attempted to establish trade between the tribes and establish a colony, but ultimately failed. The populations in the area soon dwindled, most likely because of war with neighboring tribes and disease introduced by the French. In 1603, Samuel de Champlain, the French explorer, was sent on an expedition to observe and explore southern Quebec and northern Vermont. He quickly earned the trust of the tribes and established a fur trade. Five years later, Champlain was asked to map northeastern Canada and spent three years exploring the region, and in 1609 sailed down the lake for the first time. On July 14, 1609, Champlain, united with the Algonquin, Huron, and Montegans, arrived at the lake. They were set to canoe down the river for war with the Mohawk, a tribe whose warring activities were a cause for concern to the Native Americans and potential colonists. Champlain was the first European to lay eyes on the lake, and was enchanted by the woods he was surrounded by, the islands that littered the lake, and the big game that populated the Green Mountains to the east and the Adirondacks to the west. He was able to study the surrounding landscape for about two weeks as the tribes made their preparations for war. Twenty-four canoes floated down the lake by night, and three days later arrived on the shores of what would become Ticonderoga. A battle ensued, and when the dust had settled, a great number of Mohawk were dead, three at the hands of Champlain himself. The French would go on to claim many of the lands around the lake, and a booming fur trade would arise in the region, facilitated by the alliance between the French and the Native American tribes. The lake would also play a pivotal role in numerous wars fought in the region. When Champlain aligned with the tribes, he claimed naming rights over anything he explored. Amongst the beautiful mountains and forests of Vermont, New York, and Quebec, the only feature that bears his name is the lake itself. Lake Champlain's most famous settler, though, is not even human. Samuel de Champlain is erroneously cited as the first individual to witness Champ. In truth, the earliest sighting of the creature is from 1819, when Captain Crum, aboard a boat in Bulwaga Bay, claimed to see a sea monster that was almost 200 feet in length. The monster only had three teeth and eyes the color of a peeled onion. Its most prominent feature was a bright white star on its head and a ring of red around its neck. The creature was spotted multiple times in 1873, including one by Clinton County Sheriff Nathan Mooney, 
who saw the creature glisten in the sun on the lake. The rash of sightings caught the attention of P.T. Barnum, who offered $50,000 to anyone who could capture the creature for his show. The most famous sighting of the creature was that of Sandra Mancy's. Mancy and her husband were picking up their children from a sleepover when they stopped in St. Albans to let them wade in the lake. The couple watched as a strange animal lifted its head above the water. The creature, which was approximately 15 feet long, swam in the bay yards away from the couple and their children. Sandra snapped a photo of the creature and sat on it for two years before coming forward with it. The photo has since become infamous to the legend of the creature, and sightings have continued ever since. The strangest story to come from the Champlain Valley doesn't involve strange serpents at all, but a pair of young adults that saw something incredible in the night sky. My name is Rob Christofferson. Welcome to the Adirondacks. To clarify things, this case didn't exactly occur within the Adirondack Mountains. In fact, the setting, which is Colchester, is on the Vermont side. Coincidentally enough, our story begins in October. In October of 1978, UFO researcher Walter N. Webb received a phone call from a man who has been given the pseudonym Michael Lapp. Webb's interest in UFOs stems from a personal sighting in 1951. He graduated from Mount Union College in 1954 with a degree in biology and started a career in astronomy under the auspices of our UFO dad, J. Allen Hynek. He served as an astronomy consultant with MUFON and QFOS, but most notably, he was the first UFO investigator to interview Betty and Barney Hill following their abduction experience in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. On Halloween in 1978, Michael Lapp reached out to Walter Webb to share a profound experience he had had more than a decade prior. In the summer of 1968, Michael had been a counselor at an all-girls summer camp called Buff Ledge. The camp was nestled within a cluster of trees on the shores of Lake Champlain, in the rural outstretches of Colchester, Vermont. The camp first opened its doors in 1955 and went on to earn a reputation as a swimming dynasty. The camp produced many an undefeated team and a number of state and regional champions. Michael was responsible for transporting water skiers from the 100-foot dock to a raft further out. The 16-year-old maintained the boats and skis, as well as other types of marine equipment essential to the camp. In August of 1968, it was a relaxed day. It had rained earlier in the day, 
but the dark clouds gave way to a show of reds, purples, and oranges at sunset. The beads of water on the lake marched like soldiers on parade, and on either side of the 100-foot dock were the Green Mountains to the east and the Adirondacks to the west. The swim team had gone to Burlington that day for a swim meet, making for a relaxed day around camp for the counselors that remained behind. Michael spent that evening on the dock with Janet Cornell, a 19-year-old water skiing instructor from southern New Hampshire. The two talked about their lives outside of camp and discussed what was ahead after the camp closed. The sun set, and as it did, a bright star appeared in the sky, as bright as Venus. It hung low over the horizon, and after a few moments swung down in a large arcing motion to the right. What was once a star had become an elongated cigar that glowed white, and it hovered over the Adirondack Mountains to the left of the counselors. Three smaller white lights emerged from the craft, as if the cigar were shaking off ashes, and soon after, the cigar-shaped object retraced its arc and disappeared, leaving the three lights alone in the sky. The lights put on a show for the two counselors, performing zigzag maneuvers. They fluttered in the stillness around them, making no noise as they moved effortlessly. They fell like leaves in autumn, in unison, and gradually moved closer to their audience. A trio of disc-shaped objects took form before Michael and Janet, and in the last rays of sunlight, the pair could discern a glass dome on top of the craft. The three discs formed a triangular pattern from which two of them dispersed, one to the east and the other to the south, making a sound that Michael described as like a thousand different tuning forks combined with the rotors of a helicopter. The remaining object became larger to its audience. Michael could feel fear winning out over curiosity, but most of all, he wanted to make sure that what he was seeing was real. Michael touched Janet's face, and Janet did the same to him, but it only made the fear worse. Janet seemed to be in a trance while she watched the object in front of them, and when Michael asked her to leave with him, she offered no response. A ring around the UFO cycled through a series of colors, from purple to blue, red, blue, and yellow. The UFO shot straight up and disappeared, and reappeared moments later before Michael's anxiety could truly leave him. The UFO then moved a great distance from the two onlookers and plunged into the lake, like a child belly-flopping into a pool. The splash was minimal and seemed too small for a craft the size of a small house to be making. A steady wind began to pick up, and three-foot-tall waves crashed against the buff-ledged beach. Like a startled neighborhood whose lights come on one at a time, the cats and dogs that called the banks of the lake home began to cry out, as if in agony. The wind grew stronger, and the trees voiced their displeasure with every creak and crack. Michael and Janet had to lean into the wind to keep from being pushed over. The craft emerged from the lake minutes later, and hovered low over the lake. The wind, waves, and animals all died down, 
and it moved toward the dock again, decreasing altitude in the same way a person would walk down a flight of stairs. It slowed its movements, approaching the dock as gently as it could. The glow that once surrounded the ship dimmed, revealing a silver-colored flying saucer with transparent dome on top. Two beings emerged and looked down on the unsuspecting pair. Janet continued to stare, trance-like, at the object before them. Michael, however, was fully conscious of what was before him. He had to squint to look at the pair of figures under the dome. They appeared to be the size of children, with bluish-green skin and smooth, hairless heads. Their eyes appeared to be much larger than a human's, resembling a frog's eyes in the way that they jutted out. Their faces bore inquisitive expressions, childlike in their own way, and their movements were quick, quicker than a human's, and they wore tight-fitting gray coveralls. Michael called out to the beings, What do you want? Where are you from? Are you going to hurt us? We are not here to harm you, a voice replied inside Michael's head. The questioning continued further. What is this? I've never done this before. The beings responded, This is what you call telepathy. Michael turned to Janet and asked if she had heard the alien speak. She returned a similar question. The aliens told Michael that they had been to Earth before and returned when the first atomic bombs exploded. They were here to obtain a form of energy used in warfare with the evil sex of their own species, and they were somehow using Earth as a shield. The voice that spoke to him was slow and spoke perfect English with no accent whatsoever. He could detect a smile inside the words. During their conversation, the alien would look over to the other, and they would speak amongst themselves in a high-pitched, rapid, unintelligible language. Michael could feel his mind struggling to grip with the unreal situation he found himself in. He started to resist and panic. Then he started to feel calm, peaceful. It was all somehow serene. Still, the disbelief was there, and the two states of mind intermingled. And then he laughed. He laughed at it all so hard that it caused him to slap his leg. And as he did, the alien being on the left, the one he swore was in contact with him, tilted its head back, as if in a laugh, and lifted its arm with its large fingers and slapped its leg just like Michael. It had to be real. This was proof. The cosmic joke was real. The feeling of absolute peace returned. He wondered what it would be like on the ship. And the beings and ship responded. The strange beings ducked out of sight, and the craft moved slowly over the two witnesses. The underside was circular, and was constructed of interconnecting seams. There was a plate-like construction to the hull, and many of the plates were rounded, as if they were hiding rivets. This had to be a material manufacturer, Michael thought. He tried to jump up and touch the bottom of the craft, but it was too high. 
A white beam shot down at Michael in response. He fell to the deck and took Janet down with him. Once again, curiosity left the 16-year-old on that dock, placed with a fear that the craft was going to kidnap the young counselors. The beam of light was all-consuming. It was the brightest thing he had ever seen, but strangely, it didn't hurt to stare at it. He could feel the light penetrating his skin, and he tried to shut it out, but it was as if it was inside his head. He was starting to lose consciousness, but before he did, could feel his body being lifted up into the air. He opened his eyes, and again the ship was above him, casting its light down. He could see every detail and imperfection in the wooden slats of the dock. The fading light of day was replaced by total darkness. Janet lay next to him, coming out of the blackness herself. He could hear the sounds of car doors slamming and the voices of excited children. The bright lights seeped through the cracks of the trees and drew the attention of campers Susan Middleton and Barbara Bryant, who were standing on the bluff overlooking the dock. They shrieked when they laid eyes upon the craft. It searched out the two teens with a flash of light and quickly rose up before shooting up into the sky, becoming as bright as a star in a matter of seconds. Michael and Janet lifted themselves off the wooden slats and slowly made their way up the dock. Janet seemed to be the worst for wear. She needed help to get her to her cabin, and she was incredibly tired. Michael, on the other hand, was near hysterical. He wanted to ensure he would always remember the event. He tried later in the evening to talk to Janet about it, but was prevented from entering her cabin. When the pair passed Susan on the bluff, she asked an unusual question. Who was here? The question was echoed by the assistant camp director, Richard Wilde. Michael nervously tried to reassure the man by stating, If people start getting sick, I'll tell you. And with that, he made his way to the counselor's cabin, above the dining hall in a place known as Paradise. Paradise housed all the male counselors, and one of the counselors he shared the space with was Patrick Rowland, a 20-year-old camp employee. He told Michael he had seen the craft from his room and wanted to know everything that he did. When he told him that he had seen it too, Patrick convinced him to call Plattsburgh Air Force Base. It's unclear if they told him that similar objects had been reported or if the papers released details of the UFOs seen in the area that night. But Michael was certain that someone had told him that lights had been seen in the skies around Lake Champlain. Michael was starting to get tired himself, and he retired to his room. He was only able to get about two hours of sleep before waking up again. He wandered out to the playfield where he thought about the UFO and he made his way to the playpen, a small cabin at the end of the field where counselors met and mingled. A lone counselor was in the cabin drinking that night, and Michael joined him and got drunk for the very first time. He woke late the next morning with a hangover and an existential crisis. He was approached by additional counselors looking for information about the sighting. 
That evening, he borrowed a car and drove the few miles to his house, to his family, who, by and large, didn't believe him. He then drove to his girlfriend's house to tell her about last night's events. She interrupted him halfway through, bursting to tears, assuming that he didn't want to be with her anymore. According to Michael, she was jealous of the women he had worked around and assumed he wanted out of the relationship. He left feeling angry and drove back to the camp. Michael and Janet never talked about their experience. The camp closed two weeks later, and Michael was left to cope with the experience alone. He began experimenting with marijuana. He took an interest in meditation and mysticism, and he attended college for a short period of time, before dropping out and becoming a drifter, getting by on odd jobs in New Mexico, California, and Hawaii, before returning home and earning a degree in religion. Six years after the incident, Michael began to have dreams about the night at that camp. He dreamt of being on board the ship, conversing telepathically with the alien beings, and when he woke, felt an intense weight in his chest. In April of 1978, he dreamt of the aliens for a third time, and coupled with the release of Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, became the catalyst for him to reach out to the Center for UFO Studies, and ultimately, to Walter Webb. UFO abductions are like coins. There are two sides to each one, and investigators often rely on regression hypnosis to unlock hidden memories of UFOs and alien contact. It's important to acknowledge the controversial nature of this practice. Is memory truly stored like a computer stores data? There is no evidence to suggest this. But for many a UFO researcher, hypnosis is seen as a vital tool. And in the case of Michael Lapp, it's a tool that was prominently used. One thing that sets this case apart from others is the amount of conscious recall Michael Lapp had of the incident. Under hypnosis, one of the first statements he made was, I recognize emotion in those eyes. He went into detail about the beings, saying that they had wide, mushroom-shaped heads, supported on very thin necks. They had two holes for a nose, and large eyes with pupils. A flurry of information came forward. They identified their home planet as Psi Epsilon. They reinforced their reason for being here as atomic explosions. Michael described the light as if it were going to make his body explode. He couldn't see anything, and when he tried to reach down and touch the dock, it wasn't there. He was floating, and he talked as if this is something that he had done regularly all his life. Light was replaced by dark, and then by colors. The beings told him not to be afraid, as his life flashed before his eyes. In the next conscious moment, he was somewhere else. In front of him was a large craft, and above him he could see a canopy of stars. The 
walls around him were curved and produced a luminescent glow. One of the beings was guiding him throughout the ship, while the other appeared to be the pilot. He could see Janet down on a lower level, lying on a table, surrounded by a handful of beings. The guide explained that they had been coming to Earth for as long as humans have existed. He called the human race brother and sister, and explained that Michael and Janet were here for special training. They were interested in Michael's mind and Janet's body. The ship drifted through space, and he could see Earth below the dome. quite amazing, you know, that you're still here, asking questions, the being said. Something in you won't quit, which is good for us because we find out more. But it'll be hard for you. There'll be times, you know, when you'll remember us and think that we're evil. That this should never have happened to you. Unfair, you'll say. So much happened in so short a time. But try to love and you will feel this fantastic closeness. Michael looked on at the beings performing an exam on Janet. They scraped her skin with an object that looked like a knife. A machine shaped like an inverted triangle came down from the ceiling with tubes connected to it. And Michael looked on as one of the tubes were connected to her mouth and the other to her vagina. They explain that they are collecting fluids, and that this will help them in their work. But we're helping you. We're helping you. Why can't you help us? You must know what we're in down there. All the starving children. Why can't you help us? Michael asked. Because you would never learn to help yourself. And that would be the worst thing. The creature takes hold of Michael's arm and explains that they are creating new life forms all across the universe. We are spawning consciousness, it says. Following Janet, Michael was given an exam too, though he lost consciousness as they began. He noted how one of the beings was standing by a screen that appeared to be monitoring his vital signs, and it was this being that Michael felt was in charge of the whole operation. He regained consciousness as the smaller ship entered the hangar of a larger one. He felt faint and had to support himself on the shoulders of his guide. The being led him to a tube, which took them to a room where hundreds of the beings were gathered. One of the walls had a large screen on it, and towards the center of the room sat a chair. It was a strange chair, almost like the table Janet had laid on with a high back placed at a 45-degree angle. Michael sat, and a helmet with strange prongs was placed on his head. The beings all gathered around. Michael could see lights being projected from the screen, but the helmet ultimately obstructed his view. The beings all appeared to be amazed and happy by what they were seeing on the screen. His guide approached him after some time. It explained that they were willing to show him, and they removed his helmet and led him to another room. The being extended its palm upward toward Michael, 
and he placed his hand over the three-fingered hand of the creature. He wondered if he was going to die, and the creature explained that it was like dying, but that he wouldn't die. He was going to illuminate his mind. At that moment, a light entered Michael's mind, but this light was cooling, like water. He woke up in a strange land with a purple sky, and saw an endless parade of humans wandering around aimlessly, lost amongst themselves in an alien purgatory. Janet was beside him the next moment, scared, and the two held on to each other for a number of moments, before the white light returned and the two were on the dock at Buff Ledge again. Remember, the only reason you need to know, we're protecting you from others like us, ourselves. If the worst happens, you might think that we are evil when you get confused in the future. But we are your friends, Michael. Don't tell anyone you don't trust. You loved us, and we loved you. There's too much to know. You could never understand. The voices were interrupted by the voices of children and car doors. Bye, Michael. Bye. It's all over now. Goodbye. In one of his sessions, Michael recalled that moments before he came back to Buff Ledge, he looked up and saw a series of screens in the middle of the room. He could see his body lying on the dock at Buff Ledge, and it was as if he were sucked into the screen itself before returning home. Janet's hypnosis sessions confirmed many of the details that Michael had relayed, but also proved troubling. Her recollections were often vague, but she did confirm seeing the cigar-shaped craft and the three lights in the sky. Inside the ship, lying on the table, she felt like she was in a doctor's office. She recognized a being standing at the screen beyond the foot of the table. It was the same one that Michael had seen during his examination. The being seemed to be confused by her hair while trying to perform an examination of her head. They would lift up collective strands and put them back down. Their speech resembled an audio tape being fast-forwarded. Walter Webb had difficulty tracking down additional eyewitnesses and information about the sighting. There were no newspaper records reported in the Lake Champlain area, and the military records, if they did truly exist, concerning the Michael Lapp phone call to the Plattsburgh Air Force Base were long gone. Barbara Bryant contacted Webb two years into the investigation and remembered seeing lights in the sky that night, but little else. Susan Middleton recalled a ring of lights over the dock, but nothing more. Patrick Rowland turned out to be unreliable due to mental illness, and Carol Richmond and Daniel Farnham, two counselors involved in a different sighting while on the dock, proved to be of little help. The most valuable eyewitness proved to be the camp's theater director, Elaine Campbell. Elaine remembered that during rehearsals for the camp's final musical that year, Bye Bye Birdie, it was interrupted by a student proclaiming that there were lights over the water. Elaine chased after the students, upset 
at the dispersal. On her way to the bluff, she could see light spilling through the leaves and the trees. By the time she reached the bluff, the light was now distant. Many of the students had stories about what they had seen, but they all varied for the most part. Vincent Peralt, a counselor at a French-speaking camp 25 miles south of Buffledge called Ecole Champlain, claimed to see the lights in the sky in August of 1968. At first, he and a female counselor saw what they believed to be a satellite high above. That was until it stopped and performed two 90-degree maneuvers, zigzagging in the night sky, until it descended upward and disappeared. Walter Webb called this case the most in-depth investigation he had ever conducted. It produced the main source for this episode, UFO Encounter at Buff Ledge, a UFO case history, and it's one I cannot recommend enough. Special thanks goes out to Mark Rodiger of QFOS for tracking down this wonderful book for me. What Webb teaches us is that UFO cases, even the best investigated ones, can often be fleeting especially as the years tick by. If anything, I would like to encourage UFO witnesses to report their sightings sooner rather than later. There are people out there who are willing to believe you. When I was young, my family would take trips to Vermont. We would travel on the ferry over Lake Champlain. We would all pile out of the car and look over the edge of the ship for Champ. Much like this memory, Buff Ledge itself is now a memory. What stands on the bones of the old camp now is the Bigfoot Stables at Buff Ledge Camp, Vermont's first cooperative equine community. It is a place where horses now roam, and where UFOs are distant memories held by those that no longer go there. This episode was written and researched by me, with research assistance from Thomas Newcomb. Special thanks again to Mark Rodigier of QFOS for tracking down a copy of the book for me. He helps keep the work of J. Allen Hynek and QFOS alive, so drop him a line and thank him for all he does. I'm not kidding on this, folks. He is a one-man show practically over there. He does great work, so seriously, drop him a line, tell him you love him, because he's amazing. If you'd like to support the show, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Another way you can support the show is by becoming a patron. Patrons receive all sorts of bonus audio, including our Meltdown series and early release of the regular episodes when available. You can head on over to patreon.com slash ourstrangeskies or ourstrangeskies.com to find out how to become a patron today. Speaking of our website, you can find all of our episodes, show notes, as well as our blog, and links to our social media profiles and Public store there as well. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo and website was designed by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Or over the skies of Lake Champlain, in gray we trust. Ooh.
Media.